You're listening to the Informal Bible Study, a casual and applicational look at the Scriptures. I'm John Stonge, and it's great to have you with us today. In just a few moments, we're going to be talking about what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where it gives us this picture of uh, the concept of embracing your place on the team that Christ has assembled. And there's some excellent examples of what that looks like in this passage. But before we take a look at that, I want to share something different today from what I've been sharing in previous episodes. I've actually put together a special resource for listeners of the informal Bible study, and it's a book. The book is called The Last Lecture of Jesus, and what it is is an in-depth and applicational study of the things that Jesus taught his disciples right before his crucifixion. I don't know what you would say to those you love in this world if you knew your time on this earth was coming to a close, but when you look at the Gospel of John in particular, when you look at John chapter 13, really up to John chapter 17, it includes a portion of Scripture that's referred to as the Farewell Discourse of Jesus. And I put together a book that looks at some of the things that Jesus taught in that Farewell Discourse, or in that last lecture. And you could buy this book on Amazon if you'd like. It's available in paperback, or you could have it for free. I've made the digital version of the book free to download at my website, which is pastor.us. So if you'd like a free copy of The Last Lecture of Jesus, all you have to do is just go to the website, pastor.us, and there's a link to download it right on the front page. So I've been eager to share that with you. It's finally ready. It's available. And I'd like to give it to you for free if you're somebody that listens to this podcast. So just head over to pastor.us. You'll be able to download a copy of it instantly. Now, as I mentioned just a moment ago, today we're talking about this idea of embracing your place on the team that Christ has assembled. Last weekend, my wife and I had the privilege of attending a marriage retreat, and it was particularly nice for us because we didn't have to lead it. Uh, Typically, we are leading retreats that we attend, and uh, this time we actually had the opportunity to be beneficiaries of the teaching of others, and so it was nice to be able to spend time together, to sit and to listen. And we knew a few people that were going to be at this retreat, but we didn't know who else was going to be there. And we were very pleasantly surprised by discovering that many of the people that were there, a good portion of them, were people that we knew, and some of them we had worked closely with in other ministry contexts. And the truth is, we we still are very close with these people. We're deep friends with them. And we've served on ministry teams together, and in all honesty, it still feels like we're serving together on a team. And so it was very enjoyable to be able to spend time together, to hang out in the evenings, enjoy each other's snacks, enjoy uh, board games and things like that together, and also sit in the sessions and absorb some of the good teaching on what it looks like to center our marriages on the, the truth of Christ's gospel. So it was very edifying, but it was particularly nice to be able to be there with people that, like I said, we have served on ministry teams together. And when we look at the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 16 down to the end of the chapter, which is verse 24, but it illustrates to us a team of people who serve together in ministry along with the Apostle Paul, and it shows us some significant lessons that we could absorb or we could identify with when we take a look at their lives and how they operated in ministry or how they served the Lord together. So if you have a Bible handy, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Like I said, we'll be picking up at verse 16, and this is what we read. 
But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this portion of Scripture today, we pray that you'd grant us insight and your guidance into what it looks like to operate as part of a team that you've assembled. Lord, we know that your mission for us is that we would glorify your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we see an example in this portion of Scripture of how that's done. And we pray, Lord, that we would learn from those who have come before us so that we would profit from their example and that we would grow together in our walk with you. We thank you, Lord, for all these things. We thank you for making them known to us and giving us access to your word today. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I've mentioned other weeks as we've been looking at the book of 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians is often referred to as the most emotional letter that the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. And one of the ways that that emotion is on display is how the subject matter of these chapters seems to bounce around a little bit. We see at the start of chapter 8 how the Apostle Paul was talking about generosity and what it looks like to put generosity into practice. And we'll see that again in chapter 9. And as we look at the second half of chapter 8, we see him take a, a, a diversion that's obviously related to the first half of the chapter, but he starts emphasizing not just generosity, but what it looks like to serve together in ministry with integrity, and what it looks like to be a person who puts the things that matter to the Lord first in your own life. And in this portion of Scripture, the Apostle Paul gives us a picture of what it looks like to embrace being part of the team that Christ has assembled to serve others for his glory. And one of the principles that he illustrates here in this passage is mentioned in the first few verses where he talks about this idea of being internally motivated to serve others. Are we internally motivated to serve others? Look again at the opening verses here. I'll, I'll pick up again at verse 16. He says, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. Now, let me pause there for just a second. Here you see some internal motivation that Titus certainly had, and we'll say this at the start here. Motivation is a very important thing, just in general in day-to-day -day life. But if motivation is not tied to something greater... It can be difficult to muster up. And I'll give you an example from my own life. 
More than a year ago, I bought four ceiling lights to replace older lighting in my home. And when I bought those four ceiling lights, I got a nice deal on them. I liked how they looked. And I took two of them, and I replaced two lights right away. But the other two lights have been sitting there in boxes waiting for installation for quite some time. The lights they'll be replacing aren't highly visible. They're not lights that we see quite as easily as some of the others, so I haven't been quite as motivated to fix them. Now, on the other hand, the cabinet door above our stove became loose recently, and my wife was telling me about it, and she said, you know, I think this thing's going to fall off. And I said, yeah, all right, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to that. And I happened to be standing in the kitchen with her a couple days later after she had first told me about that, and she went to open that cabinet door, and sure enough, it started to fall off, and she held it there in her hands. And I'll tell you this, within five minutes of that door coming loose, within five minutes of that door you know, essentially falling off the hinge, I had it fixed, and I had it working properly. And I was motivated, basically, in that moment by my fear that it would do permanent damage in an area that was highly visible. And the truth is, we we just bought those cabinets, I think, just two years ago. And uh, the thought of them being visibly damaged so quickly after having them installed wasn't something that I was eager to see happen. So I fixed it right away. I was internally motivated to do it. External and internal forms of motivation can be quite different. In my opinion, internal motivation is of a higher order than external motivation. It's one thing for someone to tell me or to force me to do something. It's another thing for me to become convinced that I should do something and then proceed to do it without needing to be told or without needing to be forced. And when we look at this passage, it gives us an example of the internal motivation to serve the church that the Lord had placed upon the heart of Titus. Titus is an interesting man. He's not somebody that's invisible when you look at the New Testament. In fact, there's actually a book of the New Testament that's directed toward Titus. But he was an interesting man who stands out among the early church as someone who was willing to make personal sacrifices to serve the church. Titus loved Jesus Christ. And when you look at his track record, when you look at some of the things that the New Testament mentions about him, you see that Titus was instrumental in helping with gathering the collection for the church at Jerusalem that the Apostle Paul's addressing here in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. Uh, we know that Titus worked with the church at Corinth. We also know that he helped organize the church at Crete, and he appointed elders there, and he taught sound doctrine there. And he ministered among those people, and the, the people of Crete, by the way, had a reputation for being lazy people. Uh, they had a, a reputation for being just kind of very difficult to work with. Um, they had a reputation for being drunkards. They weren't the type of people that I imagine most people would jump up and down at the idea of spending a whole lot of time with. And in fact, I think most people in this world, if they they think of an area to serve, they are often looking for areas to serve that are a little bit more simple or softer or cushy. And when you look at Titus, it seems like Titus was gifted with the desire to serve in places and in context that more prissy people would have been hesitant to uh, dive right into serving in. Most people would choose to avoid some of the areas that Titus served in, but he seemed like he was gifted by the Lord to, to serve in context that most people would choose to avoid. Well, what would motivate somebody to do this? 
I think when we look at this and we see the fruit of what was taking place here, I think that this is evidence of living with a high awareness of the truth of the gospel. Titus was someone who was highly conscious of what Jesus has done for us. I want to read to you something from Matthew chapter 20. I want to read uh, verses 26 down to verse 28. But this is what it says in Matthew chapter 20, and Jesus makes these comments. He says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Jesus said in that passage. He stressed that he had come to this earth to serve others who desperately needed him. And in doing so, what, he, what Jesus did was he set us a pattern. As Jesus has joyfully and sacrificially served us, what he's giving us the example of doing is serving others now for his glory with the power that he supplies, doing so joyfully, doing so sacrificially. Serving others for Christ's glory is the highest form of motivation to serve, and it's prompted by a deep appreciation and a deep application of Christ's love. And I'll tell you something that maybe you already know, but I'll say this. In 20 years of counseling, And I couldn't tell you exactly how many people I've counseled in those 20 years, but I have noticed a pattern in the midst of the counseling, and that's this. Many people who are perpetually unhappy, perpetually depressed, perpetually critical, they often cannot list an area of their life where they sacrificially serve others. Their focus tends to be on themselves. Their focus effectively tends to be on their own glory. But those who make a point to serve others for Christ's glory often experience a greater sense of the same joy that motivated Christ's service toward us. So as we're serving on the team that the Lord has enabled us to serve on, as we're part of this this body of Christ called the church, part of maturity on this team is that we would be internally motivated to serve others for Christ's glory. And we see that illustrated here in these opening verses. Another aspect that we would be wise to notice is that we should be mindful of our reputation and the eyes that watch us. That's also something that's illustrated in this passage. In fact, in verse 20 and verse 21, it says this, We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Let me pause there for just a second, because even though in our generation, in this day and age, we would say that there's plenty of Christian persecution in this world, we also know that there's great evidence of Christian influence. During this day and age, there's definitely things that we could point to, even in what we would say are post-Christian nations. We could point to lots of things that do give evidence to Christian influence. Well, in the generation of the early church that Paul and Titus and others referenced in this passage lived in, Christian influence was at a place of infancy. People were still getting to know what these Christians were all about, and truthfully, some believers experienced great hardship as people were observing them or studying them or just oppositional toward them because of their faith in Christ. 
One area that we see this very vividly on display was in Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem was experiencing great difficulty at, at this particular time. What had happened prior to this was they had endured a famine that made food and other provisions quite scarce. And they were also experiencing some social isolation from those who didn't support their expression of faith in Jesus. And this made it difficult for some of them to earn an income and provide for their families. And Paul and others were trying to gather resources for them from churches that had been planted in other cities. And the idea or the goal was that they would share in their suffering and help meet the physical needs of the church in Jerusalem in appreciation for the fact that the gospel first spread from Jerusalem and had blessed others spiritually. So people went out from the church at Jerusalem to these other cities to bless them with the message of the gospel. And now Paul was encouraging these cities, like the city of Corinth, or specifically the church that that gathered in the city of Corinth, to meet the physical needs of the church in Jerusalem out of appreciation for the fact that their spiritual needs had been met through an outpouring of time and personal investment from believers in Jerusalem. And as this gift was being collected, as this money that Paul was putting together was being collected, he wanted to make sure to operate with utmost integrity as a church leader. In most cases today, I think it's best, by the way, for pastors to avoid handling church finances. I think probably most people would agree with that statement. But I once heard an unfortunate story of a pastor who, after a worship service, was coming down from the pulpit, and he happened to notice in the offering plate that someone had written a note for him. And they had set it in the offering plate, and it was resting there right on top. And so he thought, all right, well, if that's got some something sensitive in it, maybe a prayer request or something that... Um, that somebody wouldn't want others to happen to notice. He thought, maybe I should just grab it right now while I'm walking past the offering plate. So he reached in, and he took it out, and he put it in his pocket, but people couldn't see what he took out. All they saw was that the pastor had reached into the offering plate, took something out, and put it in his pocket. And so, unfortunately, he was actually accused of taking money by someone who couldn't see what he picked up until they were able to see that he wasn't lying. He, uh, He had just picked up a note from the offering plate, but just the same, it would have been wise for him to have not done that, to just let somebody else hand it to him because it doesn't look above board. And the Apostle Paul, when we look at this passage and some of the things that he was doing, he knew that as an early church leader, he had a responsibility to help organize relief for the church at Jerusalem. But he wanted to do so in such a way that he didn't give anyone room to accuse him of improper financial dealings. And it appears that the way Paul handled this was to avoid collecting the gift from the Corinthians himself. What he did instead was he sent Titus and two other well-respected Christians that are mentioned here in this passage, uh, but not by name. They're not mentioned by name. They're just referenced here by reputation. But he sent Titus and these two other well-respected Christians to handle and to give account for the money. And I think there's an important principle here that we would do well to remember. Whether we think about it a lot or not, there are eyes that watch us all the time. The Lord is watching us, And so are those who are examining our lives to see if we really follow the Christ we claim to believe in. In fact, when you look at the requirements of church leaders that are listed in the New Testament, their reputation with those who aren't Christians is listed as a major 
concern. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6 down to verse 8, it says this, A church leader must not be a new believer, because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him, so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons must be well-respected and have integrity. They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. It's a good passage to illustrate this concept. It's often been said, by the way, and maybe you've heard this, that a man's integrity is shown by how he lives when he thinks no one is watching him. And I would also say that our spiritual maturity and the depth of our love for Christ is also shown in those moments. In this world, we're carving out a reputation that reflects on Jesus for good or for bad. And I would much rather be known as a man who lived mindful of the love he has received from Christ than as a man who is known for his infatuation with lesser things. And that's something that Paul was trying to illustrate in this particular passage. There was something else that he shows us here that we would do well to notice. And it's found in verses 22 down to the end of the chapter, where he talks about the fact that these men that he was serving together with, the people that were on this team seeking to glorify Christ in their service, were tested and found earnest. And he says this in particular about one particular man, who again is not mentioned by name, but he says here that he was tested and found earnest. This is what it says in verse 22 down to the end of the chapter. It says, and with them, We are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. As we mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago, Paul had assembled a small team of men to help administer this relief offering that they were collecting for the church at Jerusalem. We're told that Paul sent Titus, and he sent these two other unnamed but apparently well-known men to Corinth with the job or with the task of making this collection. And regarding one of the men on the team, in this particular portion of the passage, he says that he was a man who had been tested by them and often found earnest. Now, if you're part of a ministry team, or maybe even if you're putting a ministry team together, this is a good example. This is a good principle to remember. Before people are placed in a role of ministry leadership, they should be tested. In some way, they should be tested, meaning that their character and their pattern for living should be examined. Their track record should be looked at carefully. I know of a man, in fact, who has served in church leadership for decades. He's a very nice guy, but in every context he has served in, the church has suffered. And this cycle seems to perpetuate because his life, his track record, and sadly, even the way he leads his home, these things haven't been tested, and they have not been examined to the degree that they should have been. Now, what could be said of us and our walk with Christ if we were tested and examined as closely as the men in this passage were? Could we be trusted with these kinds of tasks? 
I've mentioned a few times in the past, but I'll mention it again now just because it's my day-to-day life and I often think about it. But I'm at the place now where most of my children are teenagers. I often wondered what this season of life would be like. Well, now I'm discovering it, and the truth is it's mostly fine. But through the years, we've had many conversations about things like just life in general, about dating, about relationships, and even marriage preparation. And that's the big thing that's on their mind right now, particularly dating and relationships. And this particular week, my son was invited to have dinner with his girlfriend's family. This is his first girlfriend. She's a believer. Her parents are believers. And they invited him to come over and get to know them. And as you can imagine, her father had quite a few questions for him. (laughs) And I like that a lot. I felt a little bad for him knowing he was going to be on the receiving end of so many questions because I remember when I went through that. But uh, I knew he'd do fine. And he he doesn't know this. Well, actually, I guess he does know this now. Uh, I believe my wife told him. But afterward, we received a text from his girlfriend's mother. And the text said, you're raising a really good son. So I guess that means he passed. <laughs> and uh, But he was certainly tested. And he was certainly examined. And the truth is, when it comes to our walk with Christ, Let's not be the kind of Christians that spend most of our time observing from the sidelines. Let's be the kind of people who allow ourselves to be tested. Let's be the kind of people who allow ourselves to be examined. And let's be the kind of Christians who are convinced that we have indeed been spiritually equipped by Christ to be an active part of the team. And there's always more room for more people to join up. So have you ever asked yourself, how has God equipped you? What's your place on this team that he's assembling? And has Christ's sacrificial service toward you created an internal motivation within you to serve others for his glory? Does your reputation before others testify to his presence in your life? Have you been tested and found earnest? I think that these are important questions for us to ask in light of the things that are discussed in this portion of Scripture. And as we wrap up, I want to point out one other Scripture to us, and maybe this is something that we could even consider personally praying. It's found in Psalm 139 in verses 23 and 24, and you have David at the end of that psalm praying something important before God about this idea of being tested and found earnest and being open to the Lord refining him. And this is something, like I said, that I think is worth praying. It's something I should be praying. It's something that I'd recommend to you to pray as well. But it says in Psalm 139, verse 23 and verse 24, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He was praying that the Lord would try him, that the Lord would test him, that the Lord would know him through and through and that the Lord would lead him in the way that he was to go. And that's something worth praying for for ourselves as well. So let's do that right now. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege of being able to look at it together today. We're grateful, Lord, for the opportunity that we have each week to do so as part of this podcast, to just carve out a little bit of time to look at what your word states and to meditate on the content and to apply it to our lives as followers of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we're we're grateful for the gift of salvation that we've received through Jesus. And we're grateful, Lord, for the fact that you have given us the privilege of walking with you day in and day out. You strengthen us, you empower us, you guide us, you direct us. And just as David prayed at the end of Psalm 139, Lord, we want this to be our prayer as well. So, Lord, search us and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in us and lead us in your everlasting way. Lord, we pray that that would be something that you would accomplish in and through us as we live out our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we're grateful, Lord, for your presence with us today. We commit this day to your care. We commit this week to your care. And by your grace, Lord, we pray that you'd bring us together again soon to study your word. We thank you for all of these things. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of the Informal Bible Study. We're grateful to know that you're listening and that you're part of this podcast. A couple quick favors you could do for us if you feel so inclined to do so. We're grateful for those of you who have left ratings or reviews for our podcast on iTunes. Thank you so much for doing that. We're also grateful to know that many of you are utilizing some of the resources we have available at our website, which is pastor.us. And I just want to remind you one more time that if you're interested in picking up my new book, which is called The Last Lecture of Jesus, and it's an in-depth and applicational study of the final things that Jesus taught his followers just before his crucifixion. But if you're interested in picking up a copy of that. You could certainly pick up a paperback copy off of Amazon, uh, but I want to be able to give it to you for free, just as a thank you for the fact that you listen to this podcast each week. So if you'd like a free digital copy, you can download one for free instantly from my website, pastor.us. You'll see the link right on the front page. And I hope that if you download a copy, that you enjoy it, that it's something that's helpful to you in your walk with Christ. And I'd even appreciate feedback from you, knowing that you've read it and finding out uh, some of the ways that the Lord uses it to encourage you in your walk with him. So that's it for us today. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful day, and we look forward to getting together again with you next Monday. Have a great week. Hi, I'm Beckett Cook, host of The Beckett Cook Show. I lived as a gay man in Hollywood for many, many years until I had a radical encounter with Jesus 13 years ago. Since then, I've gotten my master's degree in seminary and published a book called A Change of Affection. On my podcast, The Beckett Cook Show, I sit down with fascinating Christian scholars and thinkers to address the lies of the culture and bring the biblical truth to bear on those lies. To start listening now, go to lifeaudio.com or search for The Becca Cook Show on your favorite podcasting platform.